Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Boston Sanctuary since 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the Boston metropolitan area and beyond. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. We're located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets in downtown Boston, Massachusetts. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. I have always been captivated by the story of Moses leading his people out of slavery in Egypt to freedom in the Promised Land. Did you ever think about how big that crowd was? I think if someone had asked me, I might have guessed on the order of 500 people. Does that sound about right? So the real number is actually right in the text. I was off by more than half a million. The exodus was 600,000. 600,000 men, women, and children, plus, I love this, a mixed multitude. Their flocks and herds set out for the mountain of God. Here's a people that has lived in Egypt in slavery for 430 years, and suddenly, very suddenly, without even time to wait for the bread to rise, they just pack up and leave. Can you imagine? Off they go to have lots of adventures, kind of a 40-year camping trip. (laughs) Off to the promised land. The website, worldwideweb.shabbatshalomtexas, tells us that the actual physical distance between slavery and freedom from Goshen in Egypt to the banks of the River Jordan near Jericho, which is about 15 miles from Jerusalem, that distance is approximately 870 miles. Covering an average of 12 to 13 miles a day, the exodus should have taken about 70 days, less than a month and a half, 40 years. Good grief. What took them so long? According to my rabbi friends, the long detour was necessary to allow time for the people to be transformed. And tragically, for the old generation, the generation that had known nothing but slavery, to die. They couldn't change their minds, couldn't liberate themselves to accommodate their liberation. And so they died in that liminal place between slavery and freedom. What are the ways, here's my Rosh Hashanah question for us, what are the ways in which we are enslaved by old ways of thinking and being? Should we be asking, what's taking us so long? At sundown tomorrow night, the high holy day of Rosh Hashanah begins, the Jewish New Year, which ushers in the days of awe. The shofar, which you heard this morning, a trumpet made from a ram's horn, blasts 100 times, meant to serve as an alarm. 
Traditional Jewish people believe that judgment is in store. Reformed Jews hear the shofar as a call to awaken from our slumber, an invitation to wake up. The following 10 days are designated as a time to seize the opportunity to change and to be changed. We are directed to ask for forgiveness and to forgive, to let go of the old and to welcome the new. And then the high holy day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, is traditionally observed with 25 hours of fasting and prayers for repentance, prayers to be truly changed. Worship at sundown on Yom Kippur is some of the most powerful I have ever experienced. We are catapulted into the new year with a clean slate. Break the fast and begin again in love. Thankfully, Rosh Hashanah comes as an annual reprieve, the yearly chance to clean up, make it right, and be at peace. In between, how do things get so complicated? I don't know. How can we even begin to untangle that tangled web we weave? One strand at a time. Musician, biographer, and chef Bob Spitz hit a terrible bump in the road when he completed an eight-year book project and unexpectedly his marriage also ended. He was a mess. And the mess spilled over into his relationship with his daughter, Lily. This summer, he published a beautiful piece about cleaning it up. Here are his words. There are two rules no parent should ever break. One, never let your problems affect your child's well-being. And two, whatever happens, don't leave your child in the lurch. I had broken them both, he says, and more. Rules too basic even to mention. Lily was about to be 12, and she seemed lost, confused, and needy. The process of returning to our former close-knit father-daughter relationship was rockier than I'd expected. I worried that this was the fragile point where I might ultimately lose her. They fought over her schoolwork. She didn't want to do any extracurricular activities. She was reluctant to socialize. It was spiraling out of control when in one of those extraordinary moments of clarity, Bob Spitz said to Lily, give me a hand in the kitchen. The hope against hope was that rather than facing off face to face, they would connect side by side. Now, it's hard not to be simply dazzled by this 11-year-old's prowess over a hot stove, but listen with me for the healing narrative as Bob Spitz continues. We started making chicken, not just chicken fricassee, curried chicken fricassee, which is when she started to talk. Ordinarily, I would have jumped right in with fatherly advice, but I was preoccupied with the recipe and managed to hold my tongue. Gradually, her thoughts came pouring out. What's the point of meeting new people if they're just going to disappear from your life? Lily asked. This question resonated in just about every area of our lives. Silently, I gathered the ingredients, and she went on talking. 
After I browned some chicken thighs in olive oil, Lily sauteed a chiffonade of vegetables and deglazed the pan with white wine, a nifty little detail I had taught her as soon as she could walk. A stock I'd made from scratch was ready to balance out the sauce, that is, until Lily stole a sip and grimaced. Did you wash your socks in this, she asked, because it tastes pretty funky. Then you'd better do something to rescue it, I said. I pretended not to watch, but out of the corner of my eye, I saw her brown a few chicken bones in a roasting pan, then add leeks, celery, and carrots to the mix, along with enough fresh thyme to give the broth real punch. What do you think, she wondered, offering me a taste. It was rich and buttery, as intense as a fine old wine. I think you saved us from certain starvation, I said. Without saying a word, she threw me a warm hug. And she kept right on talking from soup to nuts and clean up too, and I cleaned up by listening. Just listening. The next day, without telling me, Lily joined the band and auditioned for the class play. This is the story of the restoration or salvation of Bob and Lily Spitz's relationship. It didn't come through a single act of apology and forgiveness. It came through the willingness of each of them to meet on common ground, in their case, in their gourmet kitchen, and to work to create something altogether new. How might we apply this strategy in our lives? Willingness is a spiritual practice. We need willingness to apologize, to forgive, and to begin again. We need willingness, and we need strategies. Based on authors Jeffrey Pfeffer and Robert I. Sutton's book, The Knowing-Doing Gap, life coach Martha Beck has come up with these five directives, these strategies. One, don't rely on fantasy. Let's get real. Grappling with the nitty-gritty realities of action is hard. It requires research, concentration, and creativity. But we're actually happiest when we're pushing the envelope of effort, not when we're lost in daydreams. Martha Beck suggests that we make a plan that doesn't rely on acts of God. Plan it. Do it. Be it. Two. Don't substitute talk for action. Uncertainty will freeze us in our tracks. Be bold. Rubber to the road. Three, don't panic. Let's calm down. Breathe. When we stop scaring ourselves and start calming ourselves, we become more productive and successful. Try saying, it's okay, you're okay. Four, don't scare yourself. Let's be kind. In business, Pfeffer and Sutton report, managers who try to lead through fear cause paralysis more often than action. This is just as true when we're managing our own lives. Let's toss the scare tactics out of our toolbox and replace them with firm kindness.
and five. Don't sweat the small stuff. Let's pay attention to what matters. My spiritual companions, as these days of awe proffer themselves to us, let us make of them days of liberation. May we, like Moses and his people, choose not to cling to our enslavement, but allow ourselves to be transformed. May we, like Bob and Lily Spitz, seek common ground on which to heal our fractured relationships. May we, taking the directives from Martha Beck, get real, choose to act, calm down, be kind, and pay attention to what really matters. Moses died just before his people crossed over into the Promised Land. These are the words with which he blessed the surviving generation and sent them on their way. Today and in the days ahead, I commend them to us. Moses said, I have set before you this day life and good and death and evil. I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life. Let us choose blessing, choose good, choose life, that we may live. Amen.